Once a man came to me and spoke for hours about his great visions of God that he was having. He asked me for confirmation, saying, Are these wondrous dreams true? I replied, How many goats do you have? He looked surprised and said, I am speaking of sublime visions and you ask about goats? And I spoke again, saying, Yes, brother, how many do you have? Well, Hafiz, I have 62 goats. And how many wives? Again he looked surprised and said, Four. How many rose bushes in your garden? How many children? Are your parents still alive? Do you feed the birds in winter? And to all he answered. Then I said, You asked me if I thought your visions were true. I would say that if they make you become more human, I would say that they, they are, if they make you become more human, more kind to every creature and plant that you know. So tonight's talk is about this quality of becoming more human and more kind. When I first bumped into Buddhism, I wasn't particularly looking for it. I had gotten a PhD in clinical psychology and I was having a very challenging year because I was working part-time at juvenile hall and part-time at suicide prevention. And I think the combination of these two really challenging situations opened me to other possibilities because I began to sense that the kinds of suffering that I was meeting, I couldn't find the answers to this kind of suffering in the clinical psychology textbooks. So I think I was a little bit more open to other views, other ways. And in that period of time, I met a Tibetan Lama and I went to some of his teachings. And I was really struck by one thing. I wasn't so taken with the ideas of Buddhism or some kind of philosophical interest in the teachings. I was struck by what a kind and compassionate person he was, especially since he had uh, apparently suffered a great deal. He had had to flee Tibet uh, with his friends and family over the Himalayan mountains, carrying the few possessions they had, many of which were, were Buddhist texts they wanted to take with them to India. And he eventually found his way to Berkeley. And uh, I, I would hear his tale, and I would feel such... Um, a sense of, oh my gosh, this is amazing, you know. And so I would try to commiserate with him about all his hardships. And he would look at me and laugh. And he would pat my hand and he'd say, not to worry, not to worry. <laughs> and that was such an amazing experience to me, that somebody could come out of such suffering, such hardship, with such a buoyant, cheerful uh, attitude. The next teacher that I met in my spiritual quest was a, a, a Zen Roshi, Maizumi Roshi, of the Los Angeles Zen Center. 
I went to Zen, um, again, you know, curious about what practice might bring. But what I was really struck by, again, was this very human, very kind person. In the Zen tradition, they have a, a meeting with the teacher that is called Dokusan, where you uh, go in and you're, you're face-to-face with the teacher very close, closely, and you, you are free to ask a question or to talk about whatever. And So I would always try to think of something to, to talk to him about. It was usually some kind of question or problem I was having in my life, sometimes a, a problem in a relationship or some kind of suffering. And whenever I would talk about a problem, he would start crying. And I would just be, like, amazed, you know. He never had anything particularly smart to say about anything, but he would just sit there and kind of weep with me. And it happened over and over again, and it happened so many times I began to think that I shouldn't talk about my problems when I went in there because I was making this man, you know, cry all the time. But I was so touched by his uh, real heartful compassion And to this day, I remember his presence as being one of such, such a kind, you know, man. So, you know, we come on retreat, and we may have heard these words, the the wisdom and compassion. These are the the, um, great um, qualities of being that Buddhists often talk about as as what is cultivated in this practice that we do. And it becomes quite clear quite soon on a retreat such as this that these qualities are not found by transcending the world, by getting away from things, but actually by coming into a more intimate connection with our very mundane experience by learning to open in this uh, way to the arising of every kind of emotion, every kind of thought, every kind of feeling, that this moment-to-moment meeting of ourselves very directly in the present is the path of practice is the path of cultivating these great qualities of wisdom and compassion. It's so easy to read about these and get inspired and to feel, yes, you know, and to sense the possibility. But then we come on retreat and we start meeting ourselves and we may sort of lose that sense, you know, like, well, where is it? This doesn't feel wise. This doesn't feel compassionate. Where do I find it? And by now, you've been here two days. You've had a chance to to meet yourself, have you not, quite directly? And you may be a little bit uh, uh, dismayed at what you found so far. Maybe not, but often the first few days of retreat are quite challenging. We see all kinds of things inside that we hadn't anticipated would be there. So how to meet ourselves in our difficulties. There's a Zen teacher named Sherry Huber who says, 
The only difference between the life you are living and the life you want to live is the feeling of being appreciated, loved, and accepted unconditionally. That's kind of a very interesting proposition to consider. How many of you have had the experience of being loved unconditionally? Maybe raise your hand. You are very lucky. Even to have had that experience for some limited period of time can be quite life-changing. The experience of, of somebody who really, you know, absolutely accepts you, loves you, and cares for you without any conditions. It is a rare thing in this world. In that kind of environment, something in us is given permission to bloom. We are able to connect with that deepest part of ourselves, which is love itself. So many of us are in search of that kind of love, and of course we look out, outside of ourselves. What I'd like to suggest is that the best place to look, and by now in our lives we might as well uh, admit that the best place perhaps to look is to the very person sitting on your cushion, you. That that is the only person who can really love you unconditionally 24-7. And so when we, when we do this practice, we are, as well as bringing this mindfulness and this attention, we are also very much concerned with cultivating this quality of kindness and care and love for ourselves. We have a practice called metta, which means loving kindness in Pali, and it is a whole practice unto itself, which we are not teaching on this retreat. But that doesn't mean that we don't include elements of the practice in our uh, mindfulness practice. The practice of loving-kindness is very much about learning to love ourselves unconditionally. How to do this? In the loving-kindness practice, we, we do it by repeating phrases that represent deep intentions for, for uh, loving and caring for ourselves and for others. Phrases such as, may, may I be well and happy, may you be well and happy, may I live with ease and well-being, may you live with ease and well-being, may I be free from fear, may you be free from fear. They're simple phrases, but the power of them comes in the repetition and the planting of these seeds of intention in our mind. They're not, um, they're, they are reminders to us of our heart's deepest aspiration. They're reminders to us of a direction that we want to go in, in our lives. If you reflect on projects in your life or 
things that um, long-term commitments you have made in your life to people, to uh, work, to um, creative endeavors, you can see that what brought that to some sort of fruition was the power of your intention over time. That commitment to returning over and over to um, carrying through on one um, on something that, that had a great deal of significance for you. So the practice of loving kindness has that qu- same quality of intentionality. The intention to unconditionally love and care for all beings beginning with yourself. When we practice loving-kindness, we begin with where it is easy to love. We all have people, animals, babies, gardens that we easily love. That's where we begin with the practice of love. We begin with what is easy and then we progress through categories like the, the friend, the benefactor, we go, we practice loving kindness on a neutral person, and then we come to the most difficult people in our lives. We don't start with what's most difficult, we start with what's easiest. So the, when, we, when we are doing this as a practice, we bump into places in ourselves where we see our resistance, our judgment, where we are shut down, where we are separated, where we are alienated, where we say, no, I will not love that person. They hurt me too badly. I will not forgive them. I will not accept them. So we find those places, and then we learn how to gradually, maybe it may take years, very slowly open to even that which is very difficult. Now, we're not doing this as a practice, but I wanted to um, include that awareness for those of you especially who are new to this way of practice. So that even though we're not formally practicing loving-kindness, still this, this quality of care for ourselves for ourselves, this quality of kindness to ourselves, this quality of learning to love ourselves, even when we are feeling like, like in a difficult place, where we are experiencing things in ourselves that we don't like, and we want them to go away. As Howie alluded to last night, the um, central question of the, the Buddhist teaching is the question of suffering, what the Buddha called dukkha, or is sometimes translated as unsatisfactoriness, that quality of our, in our experience of not, making, not, not being able to make it how we want it to be, how we are constantly in a state of it not being quite right, and we are constantly looking at how to make it better. So there's, with that, there's a sense of constant seeking, restlessness, avoiding, adjusting, manipulating. So on the first few days of a retreat, even though we come here with very sincere aspirations for greater peace, greater happiness, what do we bump into? 
We bump into anxiety. We bump into worry, fear, loneliness, judgment, boredom, restlessness, doubt, irritation, anger, longing, lust, obsession, compulsion, struggle, despair, grief, helplessness, self-pity, unworthiness, shame, guilt. What more to add? And maybe all of these seem to appear in one sitting. (laughs) These are all called mental states, and they are grouped sometimes into what are called the hindrances. They are seen to be the things that uh, are obstructions to this quality of freedom and peace and love and happiness that we all want so badly. They are seen as ways in which we get lost, we get bound, constricted. Um, And so they're not seen as um, desirable, are they? When something arises in the way of one of these unpleasant, difficult mental states, usually our reaction is, you know, oh no. You know, we're not, like, happy that this wonderful thing has arisen, but rather we feel this sense of angst. Oh, no, anger. I've done this how many times before, and here it is again. So, in our practice, of course we want to be free of these. The question is, what are the skillful means for freeing ourselves from these undesirable states. The skillful means in this practice is not obvious. We may discover over time that wishing things would go away doesn't really help. Judging our experience beating ourselves up for feeling self-pity or loneliness or boredom, that doesn't help. What helps? I'd like to read something written by uh, Sandy Boucher, who's a Buddhist practitioner who, this was something that She wrote after she received the diagnosis of cancer. She said, when I received the news of cancer, I understood, oh yes, what is required of me now is that I be fully present to each new experience as it comes and that I engage with it as completely as I can. I don't mean that I said this to myself, nothing so conscious as that. I mean that my whole being turned and looked and moved toward the experience. This speaks to me of her practice that she has had learned by this time how to meet her experience rather than deny it, run away from it, rationalize, try to manipulate it, change it, all that. But rather that simple movement of turning our attention towards what seems so difficult 
and beginning to work with it in that way. That takes a kind of um, uh, presence of awareness, a kind of intention to be kind to ourselves, and it, and it turns and it looks and it says, what is this that is so unpleasant? So I'd like to go through a little of the steps that we might um, find in meeting ourselves in that way. The first step is in turning towards it and asking ourselves, what is this that I'm feeling? Sometimes we're not clear. Are we worried? Are we feeling... uh, um, Are we feeling longing? Are we feeling boredom? We're not clear exactly what it is that we're meeting. So the first step is to turn our attention and recognize what is this that is present right now? Anger mixed with worry... We just recognize what it is. What is so uh, important about this is that a lot of times we get habituated to certain moods, certain feelings, and we begin to just not notice them because they're there so often that they seem like that's just the way it is. That's who I am. There's no possibility of anything else. How we uh, alluded last night to the the three types of people in the Buddhist um, topology of of types of people. There there are three types of people, generally speaking. There's the greed type, the aversion type, and the ignorant type. And it is said that these are the three poisons that keep us bound in, in worldly existence, keep us tied up in knots, keep us caught. But sometimes in, in, um, when we are a greed type, we just kind of move inside the circle of our greed and don't even notice that there is greed present. It just seems like normal. Or... I think it's kind of interesting when Howie was talking last night, I realized he said he's a greed type, and I will tell you I am an aversive type, and to my right we have an ignorant type. So you have before you (laughs) the full spectrum of what is possible here. But I know for myself as an aversive type... um, I think I used to think that being aversive was just being discriminating because aversive people tend to see not what they want, so that's not their first reaction. They tend to see what could be improved in the situation. You know, what could be done a little better or, you know, it would be nicer if this weren't here. They're always trying to get rid of things. So I used to think that was some sort of really hip, cool, discriminating awareness, you know, that I had. And it took me a long time to realize that actually there was underneath this sort of avoidance of the unpleasant that rules the aversive type. The ignorant type, um, you know, they're really easy to get along with because everything's fine with them. They, they just, you know, they're wonderful to travel with, I can tell you that. I went to India with an ignorant type, and it was really nice because 
they never knew what was going on. So nothing bothered them in particular, and I could just kind of get my way with everything. <laughs> so anyway, um, here you have it, the full spectrum. But all of us, part of our practice is kind of bringing this, this awareness, this, this meeting ourselves when we're having an aversive moment or in a greedy moment or an ignorant moment when we're sort of asleep at the wheel and bringing that kind of wakefulness just to recognizing that this is what is present right now. Oh, aversion is present right now and it's like this. This is how it is right now. In meeting difficult mind states, it's very easy to get caught in judgment. We don't like them, we want them to go away. The best antidote to our judgment is turning judgment into curiosity. Taking judgment and turning it into curiosity. Wow, instead of judging what's here, wow, can I be curious about it? Can I see what it's made of? Can I see what story it's telling me? All of these states tell us stories. What is the story? What is the emotion that is present when it's here? Are there sensations in the body that I can be curious about when this anger arises? So we begin to explore with our attention in this way, rather than just judging. Judging shuts us down. Judging is an attempt to separate us from our experience. It doesn't really work, but that's what it does. So recognizing what is present. The next essential step in working with these difficult states is acceptance. We, once we recognize something, fully accepting that it is present. Anger is present right now. Fear is present right now. Boredom is present right now. It doesn't mean wallowing in it or condoning it or, you know, it's just being honest with ourselves. Acceptance is like, yes, that is what is true in this moment. That is what I am feeling. Can we be that simple and that honest with ourselves? It's okay to feel these things. It's okay to feel irritation. It's okay to feel anger. It's okay to feel greed. All of these things. This is part of reclaiming our humanness. And accepting in this way the the truth of our experience, it has many levels and it takes getting used to because we are so used to not accepting, trying to move away from, trying to deny, trying to put on an image for other people that is a little untruthful. So accepting takes getting used to. Trungpa Rinpoche said, There is no cure for hot and cold. There is no cure for hot and cold. What he was pointing to very much is that um, 
we're always looking for a cure. And with these mind states that arise in practice, he's saying there's no cure for them. Accepting means there is no cure for anger, for fear, for grief, for loneliness, for boredom. There's a cartoon of a woman um, at the doctor's office, and she's sitting looking very nervous on the, the edge of her chair with her handbag in her lap, and the, the physician is across the desk looking kind of down at her with his specs on, and he says, There is no cure, Mrs. Handler. That's because there's nothing wrong with you. And that's kind of the way we are in meditation. We keep looking for a cure, thinking there is something wrong with us. And this piece of acceptance is telling us there is nothing wrong here. You don't need to change it. You don't need to cure yourself of this. That the way through is this open-hearted acceptance, this open-hearted understanding of what is present. That's not to say that we can't work with these states in skillful ways, but we don't have to look at them as pathological. In fact, we could even look at them as necessary Um, pieces of our journey towards kindness. A poem by Naomi Shihab Nye called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Accepting that this is our journey, this is the way it works. This piece of accepting what is present may also include, in our practice, working with forgiveness. Forgiveness practice seems very useful to us at times because it is a deep, a deepening acceptance of being human. We sometimes use this forgiveness meditation, which I'd like to read to you. It's a reflection on how we can practice forgiveness. 
For any way that I have caused harm to myself, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, in word, or deed, because of fear, anger, or confusion, I offer forgiveness as much as is possible in this moment. For any way that I have caused harm to another, in thought, word, or deed, because of fear, anger, or confusion, I ask forgiveness as much as is possible in this moment. For any way that I have been harmed by another, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, because of fear, anger, or confusion, I offer forgiveness as much as is possible in this moment. Forgiveness is a process of letting go. And as any letting go does, it brings with it more peace. I have a sister who is older than me, my big sis. I'm now 66 and she's 75. Finally, I would say in the last few years only, she has finally forgiven me for not being the person she always thought I should be. It's taken a while, but it has happened. She always thought uh, this Buddhist thing was highly suspect, and, you know, she just couldn't deal with it. I thought her lifestyle was not mine. But finally, after all these years, some forgiveness on both sides has occurred. She has forgiven me. I have forgiven her for judging me so much. I can understand why. She probably had my best interests at heart. But, you know, it hasn't turned out too bad. She even came to Spirit Rock last summer and pretty much agreed it was a nice place. (laughs) (laughs) So this, this feeling of this relationship being in a place of mutual forgiveness has really been wonderful for both of us because now we can enjoy finally being sisters the first time it only took 70 years (laughs) we can enjoy being sisters and we laugh together a whole lot i read to her a piece from um the velveteen rabbit she has grandchildren they're kind of like my grandchildren as well so i was reading them this story and i came across this part of the velveteen rabbit. While the cloth rabbit and the stuffed horse were lying on the bedroom floor, the rabbit asked, what is real? Does it mean having a stick-out handle and things inside of you that go around? Real isn't how you are made, said the horse. It's a thing that happens to you when someone loves you for a long time, really, really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. (laughs) Sometimes, said the horse, but when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? (laughs) No, said the horse, you become real over a long time, so it doesn't often happen to those who break easily, have sharp edges, or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, 
your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter when you are real. I like that part about being shabby. So, forgiving ourselves, loving ourselves as we are, including our warts, is what connects us in a very basic and deep way to our essential nature. When we can love ourselves and remember our true nature, then we are far better equipped to love others, even the difficult people in our world who seem to be multiplying at times. But they are part of our practice as well. They are humans like us who suffer in the same ways that we do. The poet Longfellow, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. This is something we can know most acutely, I think, by facing our own suffering. Meeting our own difficult mind states with kindness and forgiveness is essential. There's another piece here that I want to bring into our um, into the room tonight, which is a piece that has to do with the nature of awareness itself. I'd like to read this from the uh, sixth Zen patriarch, the Platform Sutra. Do you know when this was written, Tisha? The sixth Zen patriarch. It was a while ago, (laughs) but it seems as relevant now as when it was written. He says, Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and kindness are alike. This is very important to remember when we are trying to bring this quality of presence, this quality of mindful awareness to even that which is most difficult. To remember that in the very nature of awareness there is this great kindness. If it doesn't appear to you like that, if it doesn't seem like bringing awareness to that which is difficult has a kind quality to it, look to see if you aren't judging yourself or your experience. What is 
Healing is non-judging awareness. It is like when you are doing Qigong and there is just the flow of movement and there is just the awareness of that movement. There is no judgment. One thing I love about Qigong is you can hardly do it wrong. Have you noticed that? And you get such benefit by bringing so much awareness to the simplest movements. You can almost feel it as a movement of kindness towards yourself. So to be aware that in the very nature of awareness there is this uh, quality of love, of kindness. I'd like to close by reading um, a version of the Metta Sutra, which is a the sutra on which the loving-kindness practice is based. I find it very inspiring. So I'd like to read it for all of us. May all beings be filled with joy and peace. May all beings everywhere, the strong and the weak, the great and the ordinary, the powerful and the oppressed, the mean and the generous, the old and the young, May all beings everywhere, seen and unseen, dwelling far off or nearby, being, dying, or waiting to become, may all be filled with lasting joy. Let no one deceive another. Let no one anywhere despise another. Let no one out of anger or resentment wish suffering on anyone at all. Just as a mother protects her child from harm, so within yourself let grow a boundless love for all creatures. Let your love flow outward through the universe to its height, its depth, its boundless expanse a limitless love without hatred or enmity. If you strive for this with a one-pointed mind as long as you are awake, whether standing, sitting, walking, or lying down, your life will be a blessing to the world. Let's sit together for just a moment. beings be touched by loving kindness.
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 3, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.